What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is not your average Boston sports podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. This is episode 255. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook for the latest updates. Uh, before we get going this week, I want to want to extend a thank you to uh, Derek Welch for coming back on the podcast last week for Guest Friday. It was great talking uh, some hoops with Derek, so you can go check that out if you haven't already. I talked mostly Celtics, did a little NBA Finals uh, talk as well. Uh, we'll talk more about the NBA Finals later in the program today as two games have been played. Look ahead to Game 3 tomorrow. But I think we're going to jump around a little bit today, you know, obviously with only the Red Sox and the Revolution currently in action, you know, not a whole lot to get to. It's mostly, you know, off-season things for the other, for the other three teams. Uh, but there are some Bruins things I want to get to, uh, some Celtics, of course, um, and there's some Patriots bits as well. But um, I think we're going to start with the Red Sox. Um, you know, unfortunately, it's a tough time, you know, for this team that has lost um, four, four, not three straight games. Um, and really, I think, have not quite been the same team over the last couple of weeks. You know, you look at this team that came off, you know, wins in two out of three against Philadelphia in early May, splitting a series against Atlanta. You know, they sat at 22-16, and 16, you know, had that little losing streak against St. Louis and Seattle, but then they bounced back one four in a row, you know, and we're back to 26-20. and 20. And then, really since then, the Red Sox have not been able to be consistent really at all. You know, four straight losses, three straight losses, and now three straight losses again. So this is a team that's 4-10 and 10 in their last 14 games. And, you know, it seems like the positive momentum that they had built over the first month plus has kind of been wiped away. Um, and this is a team that's now lost three in a row, three out of four against the top team in the AL East, the Tampa Bay Rays, um, and are now sitting at 30 and 30, 60 games in. Um, and I think, you know, it's not necessarily surprising where they're at right now. You know, I think around 500 is pretty much what a lot of people would think that this is what their team is going to be this year. But I think you know, kind of the way that they've gotten to it is, you know, disappointing. I think especially when you looked at the team, especially coming into that, you know, series against San Diego, you know, a team that they're linked to because of Bogarts, but, you know, going in there, winning two out of three, and then, you know, feeling like, okay, you're really on to something. And, you know, the Red Sox have gone through a stretch recently where the offense is kind of nowhere to be found. You know, it kind of seems like there have been a couple guys, you know, Yoshida in particular, who I think has been excellent for most of the season, but really the rest of the lineup has not been able to be consistent enough. You know, not enough hits with runners in scoring position, you know, leaving a lot of guys on base. And, you know, for a team that, has its issues defensively. Um, you know, I think it's for, for, for whatever you want to say about that, you know, for a team that has to make up for defensive deficiencies, it's not a good time for the offense to just go cold when you desperately need to, you know, win some games to kind of get some momentum going. Um, it just seems like it's a team that's kind of good in places, but not the whole team. You know, I think finally the team is starting to get better. I think more consistent starting pitching, not saying that it's, you know, great starting pitching, but it's been a little bit better, you know, and it's kind of unfortunate that during this stretch, the pitching has actually been okay. You know, the starting pitching has actually, I think, turned a corner. You know, part of that was due to Chris Sale. I think part of that's due to, 
you know, Kluber no longer being in the rotation, but it's come at a time where the offense just can't find the big hits um, and, you know, can't score with runners in scoring position and, you know, can't drive guys in when they really need to, you know, coming into games where, you know, they're spotted to a deficit and then they have to come back and can't complete it. And it's just, it's just really demoralizing to watch this team day in and day out, you know, kind of knowing that they're capable of being better than what they are. You know, if you look at how they were playing the first 46 games, you know, 26 and 20, one of the best records in baseball, you know, and now things have gotten worse. They're back at 500. Um, and I think kind of back to square one, if you will. Um, and I think, you know, they've not been at 500 since the end of April. And, you know, I think that this stretch from now until the really the rest of the month, I think it's really going to tell you a lot about what this team is. Um, and I think, you know, for what we've seen, it's a team that has some guys that can hit and some guys that can produce, but, you know, Devers isn't having a great offensive season. You know, you look at his numbers, you know, the home runs and RBIs are there, you know, leads the team in both, but he's hitting 246. And I think for my taste, I think he's striking out too much. And, you know, this is a team that I think is really hoping that, you know, Duvall's return can help kind of kickstart their offense, but it just is kind of few and far between where they're getting production from. You know, Verdugo has kind of cooled off, I think, from the very start of the season. You know, he's still consistent, but it's just, you need to have more consistency. And it's just, outside of Yoshida, you really don't know what you're going to get day in and day out. You know, and it's unfortunate watching someone like J.D. Martinez, you know, knock a cover off the ball out in L.A. You know, it's kind of crazy that this that was a guy that hit 16 home runs last year. He already has 14 for the Dodgers, so I don't really know what you chalk that up to. You know, I think Justin Turner's been better as of late, but it's just, for this team to be successful, they need all the gears to be turning, you know, and I think that, unfortunately, it's the pitching that has improved, but the offense has lacked. The defense kind of hasn't been good the entire season, you know, and it's, I don't want to say costing them games directly, but it's like there there's no bigger, you know, emblematic thing of this team than the, you know, little league home run that Yandy Diaz hit the other day. You know, ground ball basically up the middle and the Red Sox, you know, throw it around like they're a bunch of 12-year-olds. And it's like, you know, just had not tell the whole story of what they are defensively. And it just is frustrating, you know, and I'm not trying to put it on Kike Hernandez for, you know, playing shortstop, but it's just, you know, you saw him playing yesterday. You know, if you watched the game yesterday, he was excellent in center field. And I think, you know, it's, it's a tough situation to have him play shortstop because, you know, he's a guy that can play shortstop but he's not really someone that should be doing it every day. And I think they've put him in a position where they're not really utilizing his skill set the best way. And I think, you know, for whatever reason, they thought it was appropriate to, you know, have him be the short, starting shortstop. And it's like, I just, it's not working. And it's like, you can't really get by from now until story comes back with him at shortstop. Um, you know, so it's just, it's really hard to know what to make of this team, you know, and where they are at this point. Um, you know, Yoshida, I think to me, has been excellent. He's been as advertised as a hitter, but, you know, unfortunately he's been ad as advertised defensively. You know, isn't exactly a gold glove outfielder, but, you know, he's a guy that's fun to watch. It's fun to see him at the plate, but, you know, it just seems like it's a disjointed team in terms of certain guys playing well, but the team not exactly playing well. Um, and it's disappointing because I think the starting pitching has improved. You know, you look at Brian Bayo, he's been pitching 
I think, much better over the last couple of weeks. You know, I think Whitlock is starting to kind of get back to the guy that he was last year. And, you know, obviously Sale has have been excellent. You know, having to be on the disabled list or the injured list is, you know, really the last thing that this team needs right now. And, you know, I think that it's the team, I think, went in relying on him to kind of be the number one, which, you know, obviously he has the ability to, but is not really someone that, you know, stays on the field consistently. And it kind of is a little irritating that they didn't address the rotation a little bit more um, because it's kind of, you know, up in the air for what it is now, you know, without sale. So, you know, I think Paxton has been decent. You know, Bayo, obviously, as I mentioned, you know, Hauk is going to be what he's going to be. Um, you know, Cutter Crawford is okay in a pinch, um, but they're really kind of lacking that, you know, anchor of the rotation, which, you know, they thought Sale was going to be that, and I think he's pitched like that over his last couple starts. But clearly it's just, you know, it's, it's hard to rely on him to be that number one when, you know, he's missed time, a lot of time over the last couple of years. So, you know, I kind of don't know where they go. You know, you hope that they can just kind of get on a hot streak, um, but it's going to be a little challenging with the Red Sox having to play the Yankees twice in the next couple of weeks. You know, a New York team that I think is starting to kind of get their stride or hit their stride. So it'll be interesting to see how that series goes. Uh, Red Sox are in New York this weekend. They will play uh, Cleveland for a three-game set against the Guardians. James Paxson goes tonight. Don't think the Red Sox have announced a starter for Wednesday's game, um, as that would be sales spot in the rotation. Um, they did call up Chris Murphy from AAA. I just know the name. I don't really know much about him. Um, but I think that he might be in line to start on Wednesday. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Red Sox, so obviously have the set in Cleveland, the set in New York, and then they'll be home against the Rockies next week, and then they'll play the Yankees at home. So, you know, it's 30 games in. It's not exactly a surprise that they are where they are. You know, it just was... You know, you thought that they had figured some things out a few weeks ago and, you know, riding with that 26-20 and 20 record. But, you know, the injuries have kind of piled up. The lack of hitting in, in big situations, you know, I think has hurt them. Um, it will be interesting to see, though, if Adam Duvall's return, which I think could be as early as next week, and, you know, if that kind of kickstarts uh, the team a little bit. But I think... You know, having some injuries in their bullpen, some injuries in the rotation, you know, has really stretched the pitching staff a little bit thin. Um, some other notes, Rob Ref Snyder of the Red Sox uh, agreed to terms on a one-year contract with him. Um, I think that he's honestly been a pleasant surprise this season. You know, I think hitting 286, a home run, 17 RBIs has been pretty consistent um, in his in his time with the Red Sox, 93 games, if you include 57 games last year, I think that he's someone um, that you hope kind of has found a home here. You know, he's one of those kind of utility guys that bounces around, has played for a bevy of different teams um, over his major league career, including the Yankees had his stats pulled up and then I went away, um, but has played for the Yankees, Blue Jays, Rays, Rangers, and Twins, and now with the Red Sox, so, you know, you hope that maybe he has found a home here, um, so that was good to see the Red Sox did, um, I think, preparing for the return of Duvall, did um, designate Rymel Tapia for assignment, which, you know, is tough because I kind of liked the way he had played for the team this year, but I think it's very clear that there is a huge logjam in the outfield. 
you know, when you consider Duran and how much he's played recently, you know, Yoshida and Verdugo, obviously, and that ref Snyder that you've signed, Duvall's going to come back. So, you know, right there, that's five outfielders. And I think that, you know, Tapia obviously is versatile. But I think, you know, at a certain point, you have too many bodies. Um, so Christian Arroyo did return uh, to the team yesterday and I think played. So he's back healthy. Um, you know, Valdez had kind of been taking his spot. You know, they'd have a couple guys bounced around at second base, you know, with Kike, Pablo Reyes. Um, you know, he's a guy that I think I kind of would like him to start being the everyday shortstop um, because I think at a certain point the Red Sox have to realize that this, you know, Kike experiment at shortstop full-time really isn't working. And I think they just need to be able to get by with decent defense. They don't have, it doesn't have to be gold club defense, but it can't be what it is. You know, Kike, I think, leads all, all major league shortstops at 13 errors. So it's like, you know, at a certain point you have to, you know, admit that maybe something didn't work and, you know, move on. So, you know, I think it kind of is what it is with this group. And, you know, I think if we want this team to be better, it's just, I don't know, it's it's hard to have an expectation when, you know, this is kind of the group of players and there's not a whole lot of expectation that they're going to be, you know, better than a 500 team. Now, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that hope is lost after 60 games. You know, it's just over a third of the season. Teams have made runs before, you know, it's not like this is a team that has nothing to play for. This isn't like the Oakland A's who have like 12 wins to this point in the season. Um, but I think if there's going to be, you know, a run for this team, it's going to need to start now because they're starting to lose a lot of ground in the AL East, you know, 12 games back after losing three out of four to Tampa. Um and, you know, losing ground in the wild card as well. You know, they're five and a half games back. And I think, you know, season clearly isn't over. You know, there's still a lot of baseball to be played. There's still a lot of, you know, things that can happen. But I think, you know, you hope that that group in the locker room can stay positive and just have a belief that it will turn around um, at some point. You know, it's kind of hard to be confident in them right now just you know, based on how that series with the Rays went, you know, on one hand, yeah, it kind of is obvious that you're way behind the Tampa Bay Rays in terms of being a contending team. But on the other hand, you know, Tampa Bay is what, 43 and 19? They've destroyed every team that they've played. So, you know, you hope that going on this road trip brings them together a little bit because they think that that, you know, homestand, you know, Cincinnati and Tampa Bay didn't really turn out the way that you wanted. You know, you lost five out of seven. So, you know, you hope it turns or turns around, you know, three-game series in Cleveland, a Cleveland team that is kind of about the same team that the Red Sox are, you know, around 500. And, you know, having to go to New York to play the Yankees, I think that that's uh, actually the first time that they're going to play the Yankees this season. So that will be kind of interesting to see how those two teams deal with each other in New York. But, you know, if there's there's any any time for a turnaround, you know, it's it would be great, you know, for them to start now. But, you know, you hope that they can get a little more healthier, you know, get Duvall back, get that lineup a little bit more, get a little bit more consistent power in that lineup and, you know, maybe not have as much strain on the pitching staff and on the bullpen, you know, considering the, the injuries that they have. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, happens this week and this weekend. So I think that's probably, yeah, I think I'll probably do it for the Red Sox. We'll move on, talk a little bit of Celtics. Um, so obviously news out the other day that the Celtics are adding a longtime assistant coach, uh, Sam Cassell to their coaching staff. Uh, he had previously been with the Sixers and Doc Rivers' staff, but 
I think after the hiring of Nick Nurse, um, it's probably assumed that he's going to bring in his, his own staff. So uh, Cassell will join the Celtics bench. Um, I think it's a really good hire. You know, I think it's um, really kind of something that they need um, in terms of an experienced assistant, someone who's been around for a long time. You know, his, he's been an assistant coach, I think, pretty much since the year after he retired with the Celtics. Um, you know, worked at the Wizards, worked with the Clippers and Doc, you know, worked with the Sixers and Doc, obviously. So, you know, obviously an experienced player, pretty, you know, well-respected guy around the league. And I think, you know, having that type of relationship with some of the key guys in this team is going to be really important. You know, and I think knowing that he's a guy that not only won a championship, well, he won three championships in his coaching career, won one here in Boston, you know, in the last year of his career. So, you know, I think this is exactly what a lot of people were looking for, you know, when the season ended and we were thinking about, you know, trying to fill out an actual coaching staff. You know, I think high on the list was, okay, a couple of high-level assistants that, you know, can take a little bit off of Joe's plate. And so, I think it's a great hire. I really don't see much wrong with this hire. You know, I think this is exactly what a lot of people wanted. So I think it's a good hire. You know, you hope that that can kind of help bring out some more of or bring out the best in some of the other guys. Um, but again, you know, it's going to be an interesting offseason because I think there potentially are a lot of moving parts. You know, there's a lot of big decisions that need to be made. And, you know, not that this decision is going to affect other decisions, but I think, you know, it will be interesting to see what other assistance the Celtics bring in. Um, I think there was a report on Mass Live yesterday that the Celtics are looking at uh, Bucks assistant Charles Lee to come in and join the coaching staff. So, you know, I think still a lot of positions to fill out um, as a couple of Celtics assistants this year, you know, we're going to follow Eme to Houston or at least there, at least that's the report. Um, so, you know, I think really up to, you know, Joe and Brad Stevens to, you know, build out this coaching staff as best they can. Um, I think as far as, you know, player personnel, it's, you know, still go back and forth on Grant Williams that, you know, was something me and Derek were talking about last week that, you know, it's hard to know, you know, what the Celtics think of him, how they view him in the context of the team, but then how do other teams view him, you know, in terms of free agent and, you know, what kind of offers is he possibly going to get, you know, it's, it's just interesting because I think he had times this season where I think he appeared to be really, really valuable and then other times where it just seemed like he was trying to do too much. He was, you know, complaining to the officials too much, you know, and kind of not being a part of the rotation, uh, which was, you know, kind of puzzling in the playoffs that he didn't play more in a couple of different series. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's really hard to know because I'm wondering if his you know, lack of role or his, you know, maybe poor performance at times, does that affect other teams' thoughts um, of him as a free agent? You know, does that mean that they're less willing to give him a lot of money, you know? And if it's something in the neighborhood of $20 million that he's looking for per season, are there teams out there that would offer him that? And I think, you know, it may not be. You know, the Celtics might be able to you know, bring him back for a reasonable amount of money, which I think he does have plenty of value, you know, as a, as a, as a big who can defend and can defend some of the best players in the league, as we saw last year. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons he could stay. Another reason could be, you know, Al Horford's getting up there in age. He'll be 37 at the start of next season. So, 
you know, Grant could be a guy that could be, you know, useful to play more minutes. Um, but I think, you know, just hard to know, I think, with him. Um, in terms of Jalen Brown and his, you know, max extension potentially, you know, I think, you know, it, it's hard because I think when you look at it in just kind of the face value context of, you know, is he worth a super max contract? You know, and you look at all the other, all the guys in the history of the NBA over the last couple of years that have signed them, is Jalen Brown on the level of those guys? You know, maybe, maybe not, but I don't think, I don't really think that that's the point about whether he's worth that contract. He may not be, but I think for the Celtics to realize that they have two all NBA players, you kind of want to build around that. And that's kind of, you know, I, I get that it's a major decision because you're going to have two guys that take up, you know, 70% of the cap or whatever it is. So it's going to really limit what you can do around them. But it's like these two guys have had success together, um, gone to the Eastern Conference Finals, gone to the NBA Finals, and, you know, I still think that they can win a championship. I think that, you know, the jury is still out on the two of them to be able to bring a championship to the Celtics. But I think, you know, the combination has to be perfect. You know, they need to have a good coaching staff. They need to have, you know, good health. They need to be able to have the right combination of guys around them. And I think, you know, unfortunately, there were things beyond their control this season that, kind of, I don't want to say derailed the season because they got to a game seven of the conference final, but it's like you can't account for Jason Tatum spraining an ankle. You can't account for, you know, the the stuff with Eme coming out and you can't account for a coach being hired, you know, two days before training camp. I just think you they had they have to be cut some slack just a little bit. And I'm not saying that you can excuse the Heat series because they clearly didn't have the right mindset in the beginning of the series and kind of had to do everything they could to get it to a game seven. But it's like they kind of made their bed with that. But I think we have to just stop and think that, okay, it's a 30, Joe Mazzillo was a 34 year old rookie head coach. You know, getting that team to the finals is hard. Getting to the NBA finals is hard. You know, it's, not easy. It's not supposed to be easy, but, you know, I think I'm not looking to trade Jalen Brown. And I think just for the reason that I still think that there's time for him and Jason Tatum to win a title, but I also don't think that you're going to be able to get proper value back in a trade. You know, if the best that you can do is Damian Lillard, you know, a guard who's going to be 30, like he's 33 don't really know how many more elite years he has left. You know, and you're probably looking at not only trading Jalen Brown, but maybe Marcus Smart, maybe Robert Williams. And it's just like, if you want to take that risk, be my guest, but it better pay off. Because if it doesn't, you're going to look really, really stupid. Um, so I just think that I'm content to run this group, a similar group back next season. You know, it's not going to look exactly the same. You know, Peyton Pritchard's probably not going to be here. Kind of go either way on Grant Williams. You know, could the Celtics trade Brogdon? Could they trade Marcus Smart? I think that those are possibilities, but I think that I'd be willing to kind of run back a similar group. You know, I feel like they could use a little bit more front court depth. I'm not sure where they get that, but I think, you know, with Al turning 37, you know, they kind of really need to fortify that area. Um, I think that getting a healthy Gallinari back will help. You know, he's another body that can shoot the three and give you a good offensive game. So I think it'll be exciting to see what he can do. I'm imagining he comes back. I don't think that he gets traded, but I think that that is potentially a possibility. Um, but I think, you know, it'll be a, 
interesting offseason. The Celtics also have the 35th pick overall in the draft. So, you know, could be interesting to see whatever that pick is. You know, does that player help them next season? You know, probably not, but you never know. Um, so I think that's probably going to do it for the Celtics. I should note, um, and I'll mention this at the end of the podcast, that we're doing a mailbag this week for for Guest Friday, so be sure to send in um, any questions you have. You know, any way you can reach me, you can send me questions that you have. So I think we're going to move on, talk a little bit about the revolution coming off a scoreless tie in New York over the weekend, and that was after a 3-3 draw um, in Atlanta last week, a pretty wild game at that revolution, uh, building a two-goal lead in this game. In the first half, Atlanta comes back, takes the lead, actually, and then Carlos Hill at the death uh, rescues the Revs, ties the game. So he had a couple goals in this game. Um, so, you know, clearly not the Revs' best performance defensively um, in the second half, you know, giving up three goals again. Um, but, you know, salvaging a draw, which is always good on the road. You know, you always want to do that. Um, but I think... You know, I think that there could be some small concerns with this team in terms of what they look like defensively because, yes, of course, you know, Petrovic has been unbelievable ever since he got here. You know, I think he's, the way that he's played, I think he's been better than than Matt Turner, which is kind of crazy to say. But I think defensively they have to be better in front of him um, because they can't just have him bailing them out all the time. So... You know, I think that that's something that needs to be improved. You know, I think the defensive depth um, took a hit with Henry Kessler being out. You know, Dave Romney, I think, has been pretty consistent back there. But it seems like that the whoever's playing back there has kind of changed game to game. You know, Farrell, Omar Gonzalez played in that Atlanta game. And I think, you know... It's just going to be what it's going to have to be. And I think you're just going to have to trust those guys to be a little bit better defensively. Um, And then I think, you know, speaking of being better defensively, the Revs, you know, I think defensively did do a decent job um, in that New York City game over the weekend. You know, obviously Petrovic made some crazy saves, but I think defensively, you know, that's kind of more of what the Revs were looking for. Uh, Christian McCoon got into this game he and Romney were in were in central defending, Farrell and Jones on the flanks. So I think that they did a better job in this game. You know, for me, whenever you watch the Revs play a game in uh, Yankee Stadium at NYCFC, you know, because it's a smaller field, like regulation-wise, it's smaller, which still is just insane, still just insane to me, um, you know. It's like, I don't want to say that, like, it's not, it's the best way to put this. Oh, it's like the field is smaller, so it's kind of hard to attribute that to better defense, or is it because there's not as much space? Um, But whatever it was, I think the Reds did do a better job defensively. Um, Was kind of surprised to see. Josie Altidore start this game instead of Rioni, uh, who came in in the second half, because I think the Revs need him to start getting his, getting legs under him, being able to play and start, you know, games. Because I think, just in my opinion, like, Josie Altidore has been around for so long. You know, you know what you're going to get from him. You don't really know what Rioni is yet, and I think... The Revs need to be playing him more, you know, and for whatever reason, if there's tactical stuff or, you know, he's injured or whatnot, you know, obviously you can't control that. But I think they need to get him into more games because they think as being one of the designated players, you know, you kind of want to find out what he is. And I don't know if the Revolution have really figured it out. You know, I think Bobby Woods has been excellent. You know, I think... He's someone that's really benefited from being on this team, playing with Carlos Hill, playing with um, Ima Boateng and the 
other guys that can set up the forwards, but I think I'd just like to see Frioni in a little bit more. Um, Gustavo Bowes, you know, kind of on the older side, has always had injury issues, but, you know, I think if they could get him and Frioni into a rhythm of playing in games, you know, that's going to really help this team going forward, but I think, you know, the concerns about this team defensively, I think were not put to bed, obviously, but I think that they were, you know, you feel a little bit better about the defense after that game in New York City um, with the scoreless tie. So Revs will host Inter-Miami this weekend on Saturday at Gillette Stadium. Inter-Miami is currently last place in the East, so hopefully the Revs can get a little bit of home cooking as they have uh, not won. They've gone... Their last win was May 6th, because since then they lost in the U.S. Open Cup, lost a couple of MLS games, um, then have tied their last three, so they're on a bit of a winless streak. So I hope the Reds can get back on track as Inter-Miami actually beat them a couple of weeks ago. So maybe this will be a bit of a revenge game for the Reds. So hopefully they can get back on track. And then they have two more home games in the month of June against Orlando City and Toronto. So, you know, hopefully the Reds can get back on track, get some points, get a little bit more consistency in terms of the defense and the goal scoring. You know, offensively, there's not been too much of a concern. You know, Bobby Wood's been great. Carlos Heal's been great. But I think for the Reds to be where they want to be, I think... Get Vrioni into some more games. You know, have him build a little bit of an attacking rhythm. You know, get Bo into games. You know, I don't know if they're going to be able to start together because I think Bobby Wood's been really good and there's no reason to take him out. But, you know, I think they want to be able to try to get those two forwards going in particular. Um, because if they do, I think the Revs are a really, really hard team to beat because, you know, Carlos Eels playing at the level he's always playing at. And, you know, I feel like it's kind of crazy we take him for granted, you know, watching him play. And it's just, just makes everyone around him better. And he's really a lot of fun to watch. So hopefully the Revs can, you know, get the team back on track, get some wins uh, currently in fourth place in the East. So, you know, not anything that's concerning. You know, I think this team and the start that they've had is probably better than most people would think, but I think that there's always room to improve uh, for this group. So I think we're going to move on. There's some Bruin stuff that I wanted to get to, so that's what we're going to do next. Um, there are, I think that there was, I think it was, I think it was last week on um, Elliot Friedman's podcast um, that he does 32 Thoughts. Uh, there was a thought about the Bruins, and, you know, I think that there was some rumblings that the Bruins are uh, trying to find, exploring ways uh, to be able to keep Tyler Bertuzzi on the roster. So, you know, clearly he will be a free agent at the start of, or he's set to hit free agency uh, when it starts in July. So, you know, this is something that I thought could be a possibility. Because of how well he played in the playoffs um, and how well he was able to fit in, you know, after the trade from Detroit. You know, you look at his numbers, the 16 points in 21 regular season games and then had 10 points in the seven-game series against Florida. So, you know, it's a guy that's obviously very highly skilled. Um, you know, defensively, I think that there are some warts with his game, but I think you know, just the way that he plays and, you know, specifically, I think the way that he played with David Pasternak was, you know, definitely part of, probably part of the reason why they were, why they want to keep him. Um, but I think it is going to kind of be interesting to see what type of money is involved with this contract. So he made uh, $4.75 million over the last two years. Uh, that was a contract he signed in Detroit. Um, but I think, 
you know, clearly was the Bruins' best, in my opinion, I think start to finish that entire series against Florida. He was their best forward, so I think, you know, there are merits to keeping him, but obviously the tough part is the Bruins are in a salary cap crunch um, and are really in a tough spot with just under uh, $5 million in cap space. And I think, you know, I'm curious to see if Bertuzzi does get brought back, you know, what that contract looks like. You know, don't really know what he's asking for. You know, there was a rumor that it was $7 million, And obviously, if it's that high, the Bruins are definitely going to need to, you know, move some salary. And I think, you know, they're kind of the usual suspects that you've heard about, I think, for the early part of the offseason. You know, Taylor Hall, Linus Olmark are kind of the two guys that come to mind. And I think, you know, clearly if the Bruins want to bring back Bertuzzi, one of those guys, or possibly even both, you know, might need to get tra- might need to get traded. So, you know, I think with Olmark, it's clear that he had a great season, you know, had some issues in the playoffs, whether that was, you know, injury or fatigue or whatever it was, didn't really look himself. Um, and I think just to kind of talk about the Stanley Cup final briefly, you know, you look at Vegas. They have a two-game lead in the Stanley Cup final, two games to none. Aiden Hill is their starting goalie. You know, wasn't really in the mix for them until kind of a later point in the season when I believe he came over in a trade. Um, why that's important is the Bruins might realize that, okay, you don't necessarily need the absolute best goalie in the league to win a Stanley Cup. You know, you can get by with decent goaltending play. You don't need to have an elite goalie. And so I think if that's the case, do the Bruins think that they can move Allmark? You know, do they think that they can get adequate goaltending from Swayman and whoever else might get brought in, whether it's someone from Providence like Brandon Bussey or is it someone else that they bring in in free agency? You know, and I think... If they do believe that, then I think Olmark absolutely, you know, could get moved and I think could be worth a draft pick or two that might be helpful. Because again, this is a team that does not have a first round or second round pick for the next two years. So, you know, it might just be something to think about that if, you know, Vegas does indeed win the Stanley Cup and they win it with a goaltender that maybe isn't the most heralded guy, Did the Bruins look at that and say, okay, do we want to try to duplicate that? You know, so I think that's the case for trading Olmark. I think the case for trading Taylor Hall, you know, is a guy that it's it's hard because since he came over from, yes, Buffalo, he really has become a great two-way player. And, you know, you really... Never saw that throughout his career with other teams. And I really thought that, specifically in the playoffs, he was really, really good. He was one of your best forwards. Um, and so I think, you know, losing him would be tough because I think that he is, you know, revitalized his career here. You know, he is 31. You know, $6 million is a lot for a guy who is essentially a third-line player. You know, and I think, do the Bruins think that, you know, I don't want to say his best years are behind him because I think that they are, but, you know, do the Bruins think that they could be able to get by with, you know, a young player or someone like that on the third line who isn't making as much, you know, someone that impresses in training camp, but I think you know, that is a big risk that you're taking. And I think with Taylor Hall, you know what you're going to get. You know what type of player that he is. Um, I think as far as other guys that might, you know, be put in that position, you kind of don't know what they are, what they are. you know, in terms of guys in Providence like a Merkulov or a Johnny Beecher or a Lysel or Oscar Steen. You know, you kind of don't know what they are yet. And I think, you know, if the Bruins choose to trade Hall, it's a risk. 
Um, but I think that if you think about what a potential top six could be if Bergeron does come back, you know, you're looking at Mar- Marchand, Bergeron, DeBrusque, and Pasternak, Zaka, and Tyler Bertuzzi. Those are two pretty good lines. And I think if you consider a third line with, you know, Coyle and Frederick, assuming that he gets re-signed, you know, then you can kind of look at, okay, who's a third line player that could be fit in there? Obviously, he's not going to give you a similar type of production as Taylor Hall, or at least I don't think they, I don't think that that person would, whoever it is. But do the Bruins think that, you know, they can get by with someone on that third line that may not make as much as Taylor Hall, but could kind of give you a similar type of impact. You know, league MVPs don't grow on trees. Obviously, the Bruins are not going to be able to find an MVP, you know, in free agency or whatever. But, you know, it's it's a lot of tough decisions. Um, but I think that I wouldn't be adverse to Bertuzzi coming back. But I think, you know, it's a lot of... There are a lot of tough decisions um, because I think that decision on Bertuzzi affects the entire roster that do you have to move off salary? Do you have to trade, you know, multiple guys? I haven't even talked about the defense. Um, I just don't know the type of value that you're going to be able to get for a Mike Riley or a Derek Forbert or a Matt Grizzly, you know. It could just be that it's just draft picks for whatever money that they offload. Um, but I think... Yeah, the other, there was another rumor that the Bruins are really, really liked Dmitry Orlov um, and maybe have, I guess, buyer's remorse was the term that someone used in a rumor on Hampus Lindholm, which, I'll be honest, I don't know if I believe that necessarily. Um, you know, I could see how the Bruins liked Orlov, but it's like, I don't know, something about that Lindholm thing doesn't really add up. You know, I know that he wasn't good in the playoffs, but you just gave him a long-term deal, and you know, six point five million for a guy like that isn't that much. You know, and I also just think, you know, Orlov's going to be thirty-two at the start of the season, and it's just, you know, what what kind of deal are you going to really going to give someone like that? You know, Orlov was good here, but it's like, I think that there could be some. Um, there could be, there could be, you know, an agent pushing a certain thing that, you know, oh, the Bruins really want to keep Orlov. Does that, you know, scare off other teams? Who knows? You know, Orlov obviously was really good in the time that he was here. You know, played 35 games, or played 30 games, excuse me, with the Bruins playoffs uh, and regular season and had 25 points. Was very productive, but I just... I don't know if they're going to be able to keep him. You know, I do understand the idea that, okay, you traded for Bertuzzi and Orlov, and, you know, you thought that they were rentals. Um, Or you kind of figured that they would be rentals. Um, But it's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard decision because there are positives to both Orlov and Bertuzzi. But I think, you know, you could argue negatives too. Um, But it's just... One thing's for sure, it's going to be a very uh, critical offseason for the Bruins. But I think, you know, could it work that the Bruins bring in both of the bring both of these guys back? Absolutely. You know, I don't think that there's anything that's out of the question. Um, you know, could see them moving Hall, could see them moving Hallmark. You know, could they move a Grizzly? I think that if this team really wants to be able to compete next season, you know, it, it's there. It's certainly there is a path that's there. Um, and I think that some of it might involve Bergeron coming back. Um, I think if he doesn't come back, then I think you might have to, you know, work, not change course, but I think, you know, really have to consider, you know, what this team really is. So, you know, I do think Bergeron comes back. That's just my gut feeling. I don't think Krejci comes back. I'm you know, pretty confident on that, but 
I think bringing back Bertuzzi makes sense. Um, I just not sure about the the amount of money and then the amount of length uh, because you don't want that to you know further affect you know salary cap down the line. But you know the Bruins are going to have to get creative. That's for sure. You know if they're going to want to keep uh, Bertuzzi, but I do think that there is a path uh, that they could keep him. You know. Again, positives and negatives to to him, you know, or love. I'm less I'm less inclined to believe that he comes back, um, but you know, gonna have to see kind of what his market's gonna be. So I think that's probably gonna do it for the Bruins. Uh, we're gonna get to some Patriots stuff. Um, OTAs obviously in full swing. Um, they are voluntary uh, before anyone, you know, gets up in arms about certain guys not being there. You know, I think that it's really kind of up to whoever the player is. You know, I think that it's good to see that Mac Jones and Bill O'Brien are, you know, working well together. The Patriots have brought in a couple of the off-season additions that have been at OTAs. You know, I think just kind of hearing about how the offense is being put together and, you know, it seems like it's more kind of put together than it was last off season. So I think that that's exciting. Um, and I think that the rookie minicamp comes up um, at some point in June. The Patriots did sign a rookie free agent receiver, Ed Lee, played for the University of Rhode Island, so not really sure what to make of him. You know, kind of a smaller guy probably could be a potential slot receiver. We all know the Patriots and their success rate with the undrafted free agents, um, so I think you could possibly add him to that list. You know, we'll see what he can do. Um, but I think, you know, and continuing to think about DeAndre Hopkins, um, and kind of that conversation from last week, I think it would be a great move for the Patriots. I think, you know, he's a high-profile player and is an incredibly skilled receiver. Um, you know, fair to wonder about his fit on this team and, you know, is he going to be the same dominating receiver that he was at times, you know, in Arizona and Houston? Um, you know, I think could be a great addition to the Patriots. Um, you know, really give you that ability to have a guy who can take the top off the defense and just kind of be that big-time all-around guy that, you know, Mac Jones can go to. Um, but I also think it's going to be interesting to see if that does happen, what happens with the other receivers on the roster, because I think that, you know, if you do bring in Hopkins, that's another receiver that you have, and you have, I think, seven or eight that are, you know, on, on the team at the moment. So, you know, there might need to be some cutdowns in terms of a Kendrick Bourne or a Devontae Parker or, you know, someone like that. You know, I think that they would have a lot of decisions to make um, in, that, in, in that regard. So, um, you know, I think I'd give them a decent chance uh, to sign him. I don't think that it's out of the question. You know, I actually think it's more realistic than not, you know, it kind of seems like it's the Patriots or possibly Cleveland, you know, with his connection with Deshaun Watson um, in Cleveland. But I think, you know, could be a could be a good addition uh, to this team. And I think would, you know, help them, you know, as, 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 as stupid as this sounds, kind of make them be more legitimate in some people's eyes. Um, I don't think a lot of people are taking this team seriously you know, for, for, for whatever reason, but, you know, I think bringing in someone like that would kind of put some people on notice. Um, you know, not, not that they need to, you know, I think that either way, the Patriots are going to be a good football team next year and whether or not they bring in DeAndre Hopkins, don't really know if that really changes their outlook. You know, I don't think that this has ever been a team that it's, you know, dependent on one star player that, that elevates them. Yeah, I know Brady, but you know, I think 
currently the way this team is, you know, constructed. I don't know if they're really in need of a big superstar receiver. It certainly would help. But I don't think that it's kind of the end-all, be-all that, oh, if they don't get him, they're not going to do anything. Like, I think this is going to be a good team. I think this is going to be a playoff team. That might sound crazy to some people, but this was almost a playoff team last year for as bad for as bad as it was. They were a game away from the playoffs. They beat the Bills in that last game. You know, they go to the playoffs, you know. They, those two kickoff returns are covered better. You know, they could have been in the playoffs. So, you know, it's not it's not a crazy thought that they could be uh, back in the playoffs next year. So I think that that's going to do it for the Patriots. We're going to do some bouncing around sports here. The um, Get to some NBA notes before we talk finals. <clears throat> the Suns are hiring David Fisdale as an assistant coach. <clears throat> and uh, Team USA that will be competing in the FIBA Basketball Championships in the Philippines. Uh, Jaron Jackson and, and Brandon Ingram have been named to that team as uh, Steve Kerr is the coach, Grant Hill is the executive director, so they'll be finalizing a 12-man roster. And that event is in late August. So as far as the NBA Finals, Game 3 in Miami tomorrow night at 8.30, the Nuggets able to win Game 1 pretty easily. And then the Heat being able to uh, withstand a late Denver comeback in Game 2 to win 111-108. So the series is tied. You know, I think uh, you had to expect Miami was going to come back um, and win this second game. I wasn't surprised. You know, I think that, you know, I thought that the Nuggets would be a little bit better down the stretch um, in some of these games, you know, choosing not to call a timeout. At the end of that game, you know, Murray misses the three, but I think, you know, you got a good look with your best shooter and don't really feel like spending a lot of time on that particular decision. But I think, you know, Miami's ability to shoot has definitely, you know, kind of might be the deciding factor. You know, didn't make shots in game one. They scored 93 points. They make their shots in game two, score 111. You know, Struess had a couple threes. Um, just curious to see how the energy shifts to Miami. You know, does do the Heat continue to have momentum from Game Two, or does it shift over to Denver? Does Denver, you know, take Game Three more seriously than they did Game Two? You know, Michael Malone was pretty critical of his team um, in that game. So, do the Nuggets respond on the road? You know, I think Jokic is going to be Jokic for Denver. It kind of depends on. The other guys, you know, Jamal Murray, Aaron Gordon, um, you know, and then for the Heat, it's just knocking down shots. I think it's really that simple for this team. Um, but I think whatever team wins has to have a little bit more, you know, oomph defensively because I think, you know, Butler's going to be Butler, Jokic is going to be Jokic, but, you know, how do you defend on the other guys? You know, how do the other guys shoot, you know, Vincent Struess, Duncan Robinson, for Miami, you know, the guys off the bench for Denver, you know, both Browns, Christian and uh, Bruce Brown. So excited to see how that series continues. Game three again tomorrow night in Miami. Stanley Cup finals, uh, Vegas beating Florida last night, seven to two in game two. So they are now up two games to none. The series will shift to Florida game Three will be Thursday night at 8 o'clock. So, you know, Vegas really, I think, they're just the best team. I think that, you know, going into the playoffs, you kind of figured that the Bruins were the best team in the East. Obviously, it didn't shake out that way. But that Vegas was the best team in the West. And I think that they've shown, they've shown it. You know, I think that they've been the best, most consistent team in this in the playoffs. You know, I don't want to say that Florida got lucky 
I don't want to say it like that, but I think playing against Toronto, playing against a pretty severely undermanned Carolina team, you know, it's 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 hard to judge whether were the Panthers really like by far the best team. Yes, they were winning all these games, but you look at that Carolina series, they won all four of those games by a single goal. So, you know, I think that that series could have gone a different way. Um, but I just think with Florida, they're running into a Vegas team that is just so deep and so good at so many, you know, different areas that it's just too much for Florida right now. And I think that you're starting to see them unravel a little bit. You know, I honestly thought that that's what was happening in the Bruins series in game four when the Bruins won and went up three games to one. But I think, you know, kind of it's a similar situation here. You know, how does Florida respond to being back home? You know, is Vegas going to be a, is, are they going to be professional? Are they not going to buy into the Panthers trying to, you know, goad them into doing stupid stuff? They certainly tried last night. Um, but I think, you know, this game three is going to decide the series. I think if Florida wins, they're back in the series and they can make it interesting. But if Vegas wins, I have a feeling they're going to sweep. Um, I just think Vegas is just the best team. And I think, yeah, there's going to be a lot of conversation um, around these parts if Vegas does win uh, with Bruce Cassidy. But I think the way that that team is built, you know, with Eichel, with March or so, with Mark Stone, you know, and all the great defensemen that they have, you know, Shea Theodore, uh, Braden McNabb, Petrangelo, Alec Martinez, they're a really well-built team. And I think doesn't really have a lot to do with Bruce Cassidy. You know, maybe it does a little bit, but I think, to be perfectly honest, if they had a different coach, I kind of still think that they would be in this position. You know, I think that, you know, it would be a popular refrain to be, oh, well, the Bruins shouldn't have fired a Stanley Cup winning coach, assuming that happens. But I think, you know, Vegas' success is more about the guys that they have, you know, and the players that they have and the way that they're playing than it does the coach, you know. So, you know, I think, as I said last week, the Bruins' decision to fire Cassidy, in my opinion, doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on right now with Vegas. You know, the Bruins made a decision to move on. You know, I think it was the right decision. You know, whether or not Cassidy wins the Cup, it was the right decision. You know, you needed to get more out of certain guys, which they did. You know, yeah, it's too bad that the season ended the way it did. But, you know, it's it's easy to look back and say, oh, well, they should have done it this way. Would the Bruins be in the Stanley Cup with Bruce Cassidy right now? No, I don't think so. Because I don't think that the team is going to perform the same way that this year's team did. You know, I kind of tend to think that they would be close to kind of what they were last season, you know, getting to a first-round series. You know, maybe if Cassidy coaches this team, maybe they get out of the first round, but it's like that's a heck of a, you know, mental gymnastics type of thing to do, to be like, oh, well, if they had a different coach, it'd be a different outcome. Well, yeah, if you replace Montgomery with Bruce Cassidy, but then you don't consider any other changes that may or may not have happened you know, like Krejci, maybe or maybe not coming back. Jake DeBrusque, probably not being with the team. You know, I don't know how you account for those things. How do you account for, you know, Frederick Carlo and, you know, the guys that you wanted to get more out of Montgomery, and you did. Are those guys going to perform the same with Bruce Cassidy? Probably not, you know. And I think that you know, if the things that were going on were true, that Cassidy's messaging kind of grew stale, grew stale and guys were kind of tired of hearing the over and over rah-rah stuff or whatever it was, did they really perform the same way that they did this year? You know, maybe not in the regular season, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a heck of a leap to make that, oh, it's the wrong decision to fire Cassidy because he won a Stanley Cup and it's like you're ignoring all types of context, you know, who the Bruins were as a team, who Vegas was as a team, you know, Vegas was already 
one of the most talented teams in the league. You know, it's not like Cassidy took over, you know, a different team and coached coached them up and made them into winners. You know, Vegas, their team is already very good. You know, they already have a couple guys that have gone to a Stanley Cup. You know, so it's like, I think it's less about Cassidy and more about, you know, the Vegas players and how the, the, the way that they're built. Um, so I think, just kind of finished my thought on that. Um, move over to the NFL. The Bills are signing uh, Leonard Floyd to a one-year deal, so he improves their pass rush a little bit. The Bills are breaking ground on their new stadium worth uh, $1.5 billion. And the Colts, uh, one of their eight Colts players being investigated for possible gambling violations. Um, so I think we're going to move on, talk a little baseball before we let you guys go. Take a look at the standings. We took a look at the AL East and kind of where the Red Sox were. Um, so AL East, Tampa Bay, obviously, 43-19. and 19. Very, very good season that they've put together uh, so far. So they have a four-and-a-half game lead over Baltimore for second place. Minnesota is first place in the Central, three-and-a-half up on Cleveland. Texas Rangers have the best record in baseball, and they are three or second best record, I should say. A three and a half game lead over Houston in the National League. The Braves are up three games on the Marlins. Pirates are a half game up on the Brewers for the NL Central, and then the Diamondbacks and Dodgers tied atop the American League or National League West. And then in the wild card spots, you have Baltimore, Houston, and the Yankees with. Toronto three games back, the Angels five games back, and then the Red Sox are five and a half back in the National League. Arizona, Los Angeles, and Miami are in the playoff spots. And then Milwaukee is half game behind. Miami, Mets are two games back. Giants are two and a half back. So I think that's probably going to do it for me this week. Uh, great to be back, and... Uh, as I said earlier, you know, do a, a mailbag for Guest Friday this week. So uh, make sure to send in your questions. I'll try to get to all of them and we'll talk to you then.